How should I start? Up, oh, your internet cut. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Everybody, I am Jason Trost, and I am very pleased to announce that I am the new host of the Business of Betting podcast. I'm a huge fan of the show. Jake Williams has done an amazing job, and he's handed over the baton to me. I couldn't be more honored or excited about it. My day job, I am the CEO and founder of Smarkets. Uh, we have a multiple range of products at Smarkets. We have an exchange, we have a sports book, we have an odds comparison site coming out soon, and we operate the world's largest market maker. So I'm somebody that has seen sports betting from the outside and the inside. The reason why I founded Smarkets is I used to be a trader in finance, a stock trader, and I came across sports betting and, and it had many characteristics, but I couldn't understand how the how you would place a bet, how the transaction fees added up. And I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. So that's why I founded Smarkets. Um, Business of Betting podcast has been part of my podcast diet for years. Uh, Jake has done an amazing job peeling the curtain back. Growing up, I always thought sports betting was a mafia thing. You know, if you watch Sopranos, it's still one of the big business models of Tony and his crew is a sports betting model. But today it's it's much more like uh, geeks behind spreadsheets and computers with uh, math degrees and physics degrees. The industry is completely transforming from a sleepy old, um, you know, pen and pa paper, phone, uh, chalkboard industry into one that's run by PhDs with uh, degrees in statistics. It's it's really changing industry and it's very exciting to see. One of the things I really want to do with this podcast is, is pull the lens back about like, how do you do a model for, for um, to model a sporting game? How do you uh, employ people? What are the secrets of the industry? How do uh, professional sports bettors really make money? These are things that I've found out over the years, but I'm still learning and I still want to keep asking questions to see how people are doing it to ultimately fix this industry. It's a very backwards in industry in many respects, and there's so much new energy, especially with the United States opening up. And it's a really exciting time uh, in this space. And I really want to pull the curtain back. I couldn't be happier that our first guest is Jake Williams, the founder of the Business of Betting podcast. Um, Jake has been somebody that I've talked to for a long time now, and I've really enjoyed his podcast. I enjoy his perspective on the industry. And in the interview, we talk about why he got into this industry, his experience at Sport Radar and PointsBet, and where he thinks this industry is going. Um, I hope you give it a listen. Thank you for staying with us at Business of Betting podcast. I hope I do it justice, and I'm really excited to bring you uh, inside stories about this industry that we all love. Thanks very much. Cool. Well, welcome, Jake Williams. Uh, this is the first guest uh, of that I'm hosting. I'm really happy to have you as the first guest. Um, I've been going through all the archives of the last 170 episodes, and it's really remarkable all the work that you've put into this business of betting. I'm very honored to continue the uh, the legacy that you put on. Uh, it's crazy. It started in 2017 and it's gone all the way up until 2021. So, I, you know, four or five years of of almost weekly podcasts. Um, it's an incredible body of work. You should be very proud. So before we kick off, where do we find you today? Where in the world are you? I live in New Jersey. So I, I moved back to the U.S. a few years ago now, um, prior to PASPA, but 
my wife's here, my daughter's here, so my life for for the most part is is now in New Jersey, which is which is great. Um, close to Manhattan, got all the the trimmings that you need of being able to get out there without having to actually live in a in a shoebox. When you say prior to PASPA, do you demarcate all the important events in your life by uh, vetting legislation? I hope we don't do that anymore, but I can literally remember where I was. I was in the dentist chair. It was, I think it was a Monday morning. And we'd been waiting for the prior six weeks for the decision to come down. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm going to do normal stuff on the day that the Supreme Court decisions come out. And then, of course, that was the day. But I kind of, but yeah, it's still... um, it's very much in the normal conversations in the US, which I hope goes away soon because there's plenty of other good things in life to talk about other than a piece of legislation. Absolutely. So uh, I, I've been going, as as I've been looking into taking over uh, the podcast as a new host, I've been going through all the old episodes and um, you know I've seen all the comments and, and people really loved hearing from you. So why don't you take a few minutes and say, you know, why did you think it was time to hang it up and, and uh, what brought you to today? I think it was probably just in life. I was probably ready to to move on um, in my podcast life, my professional life. I have a, a young daughter now at home. So, you know, the COVID period, pro- as much as it was great for podcasting generally, I would probably guess. Um, for me, it was the opposite. Like, I think I lived outside of my normal space for so long, like everyone, and then being just condensed, doing a podcast where I lived, where I slept, where I worked all became sort of on top of each other. So it, it almost made it uh, less, I guess, palatable to continue on. I thoroughly enjoyed every, like literally every episode. Um, I got so much out of it, but it was it was more just, uh, I guess, a moment in time where I sort of assessed life and, and a few other things and thought maybe it's best to um, slow down. And then I did. And then ultimately I just thought it's probably best to leave this on the shelf and had a few conversations with different people who were sort of intrigued as to why it, it was not happening anymore. Because like you said, I was pretty consistent. I think I did at one point, it was sort of 150 episodes in 154 weeks or something like that. And it was, it was certainly a pleasure point for me each week. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard work. It wasn't difficult to get every episode out. Um, and it was just probably a, a good end point that felt right at the time. And, I was not sort of desperate to keep it going necessarily. Um, it had done a, a lot of good things by me. And and then it was just a matter of if it made sense to, to continue it on in some capacity, I was very open to it. And that's obviously where we sit today. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope I do it honor. Um, you know, it, it, I know through the years, it was it was my number one industry podcast that I would go to to see what was going on in the industry. There's a lot of sports betting podcasts that sort of talk about picks and all those kind of stuff. But what I liked about this podcast so much was, you know, real insiders basically talking about how they thought about the industry from the inside out, um, which I found fascinating. Even as a CEO of a, of a sports betting company, um, I find it really interesting. And honestly, that's why it started. And it wasn't, it wasn't for any, you know, great epiphany or anything like that. It was like, let's get one episode, see what happens. I lived in, I grew up in Australia and lived in the US for a while. Then I lived in the Cayman Islands for a while. Then I moved out to Germany. I was living in Munich. And as an Australian sports fan, as a horse racing fan, as an American sports fan, trying to get content throughout sort of my teens and into my early 20s wasn't that simple. Not like it is today. You know, I traveled to Europe for the first time. I I remember vividly landing in Rome and thinking, there's horse racing on today and I've missed it and I can't watch it and I can't get replays and 
there's no iPhones. There's, you know, snake on my phone that'll keep me busy. And from there, it was sort of, as I moved around the world and as I lost connection with some of that stuff that was going on, um, once it became more feasible to do podcast or at least consume more podcasts, it was a good connection point back to those things that I enjoyed. And then as I progressed in life, I think, and I guess matured as a person, um, there wasn't anything in the betting space that was aspirational or that I could learn from. Betting is funny. There's, there's really no heroes in betting, if that makes sense. Most other things in life there are, whether it's even things like horse racing, there's jockeys and horses and, and trainers. Sports, obviously, have your heroes. Even in business, you know, there's plenty of people, Ray Dalio and, and Warren Buffett and all these people who are aspirational and you can learn from and things like that. Betting, well, I know why, but there's just no heroes in betting, which is not necessarily a bad thing in, in and of itself, but it also meant it was really hard to scratch the surface on too much other than, like you said, the pick shows or base level analysis. So that was kind of the, the genesis of a lot of it was how do I learn from people and do it in a way that's an area of my work and also things I enjoy in life. And there was just nothing really for me to, to wrap my hands around back then. That's an interesting point. I, I totally get what you mean about heroes, lack of heroes in the industry. Um, from my perspective, the most impressive people that I know in sports betting generally are kind of behind the scenes types. You know, some of them have been on your podcast. Uh, some of them uh, have not been on your podcast. Uh, but, you know, the the really, really smart people that I can learn from, uh, you would never see their name in a conference. Uh, you would never see them speaking. Uh, they kind of operate behind the scenes. So uh, I totally I totally buy that. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background? You said you're from uh, Australia. I know you trained as a lawyer. Did you always know that you wanted to be in sports betting or just something around sports? I think so. But it was, you know, growing up playing sports as a kid and then getting to my early 20s, realizing I wasn't going to play professional sports like most and wanted to stay sort of tangentially connected to sports and was trained as a lawyer by sort of, not by design by any means. It was more that didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. I was told by someone I trusted, if you get a law degree and a, and a business degree, you'll be fine in life probably. And that was kind of how it started. So from there, I moved to the US, lived in America for a while, did my master's here and then ended up getting involved directly in, in betting during the studies. I did a, my thesis at the time was on the legalization of sports betting in the US and Canada and related integrity concerns. Um, Cause obviously black market back then. And that was kind of the beginning. And there's just, there's no one to talk to about it in the United States back then. Um, so I ended up moving overseas and working in the industry. And it was at that time that sort of a lot of the progression of my career started to happen. And I was looking around for, support and how do I get better? How do I improve? You know, there's no legal podcasts out there that I listen to or anything like that. So as a, as a gambler or a better myself to, you know, from the genesis of Australia and, and growing up through that period, it was leaning on professional gamblers or people talking about poker or some of those things that, um, that helped me through in life. And honestly in work and in most things, most things come back to probability to, um, to gambling in some sense, whether it's, figuring out my commute, you know, I'll think about that in depth from a probability perspective. If I leave now, I'll get that bus. And if I get that bus, I'll be able to get on the subway to Manhattan and I'll be in the office by this time and I'll make that meeting. And those are the types of things that gambling teaches you, which can be very bad and makes life kind of boring sometimes. Um, but also allowing myself to, to find the entertainment in it as well is something I try and do more so now. But um, yeah, it's been a 
been a pretty weird, wild ride at this point, but um, certainly wouldn't change much of it. Do you, uh, did you come to the United States for uh, sports betting, or did, or did you come uh, for personal reasons? Yeah, I was working at a company called Sport Radar, which many people will know uh, in Germany at the time, and then I moved out here and back out to the U.S. in probably 2016, and we'd acquired a U.S. business and was working directly with with respect to that and. It was a good opportunity at the time. It wasn't really betting related. If you rewind back then, it was really Nevada, which was largely a retail business or a limited digital digital business then. And so a lot of media work, a lot of work with sports leagues and things like that that um, was happening back then. And then obviously things changed. And it wasn't, when, from a betting perspective, I mean, it changed. It wasn't really predicted. It was always five, 10 years away. And then suddenly um, it made its way to the Supreme Court. And even even at that point, it wasn't it wasn't a, a certainty that it was going to go well. And then I remember sort of rumors or things like that were popping up that it's probably going to go positively and this could happen. So it all was pure luck and chance and timing that someone with a legal background and some betting experience was in New York City working at a betting company um, that allowed me to put myself in a position to work closely. As you probably know, the US market is um, a lot of red tape, a lot of legal and regulatory stuff going on. So it was a a useful position to be in at the time. So for the, so sport radar is actually quite, you know, I would say one of the largest uh, background businesses uh, that exists in sports betting. So for the listeners that don't know what role sports radar plays, why don't you talk a little bit about the importance that it plays in the industry and, and the innovations that are brought to the industry? Yeah. So now public actually um, sport radar, probably the biggest sort of data trading technology supplier, like you said, in the background, um, certainly revolutionized to a large extent, just how live and online betting sort of evolved um, without the tools and the data and the technology that at a certain point, pretty much every bookmaker, every regulated bookmaker in the world was was using sport radar type services. Um, and then it's continued to evolve. And even to the point where when I was in the US, you know, the idea of official data and working with sports leagues wasn't a common normal thing and you know the innovations that came out of sport radar really have set the way for for how online and, and sort of live betting um has evolved now there's certainly been other product evolutions and iterations around that but without some of the core services at, at sport radar i don't think the industry would necessarily be as advanced or accelerated to the point it is today so the the first company I remember in this space was Running Balls. Is that part of the Sport Radar family, or is that a separate family? Separate, but same sort of thing. Yeah, there was there was a, there's a few Genius Sports as well. Uh, Running mm-hmm. Ball, you mentioned Sport Radar. Um, there's a couple of others as well, and there's certainly some more um, sort of younger, smaller businesses as well that are getting into the space uh, in different ways, either data collection or a lot of pricing businesses now that are that are working in the the betting industry with things like micro markets and um, more prop related stuff, not just the core sort of spread total and money line stuff. So it's, it's really evolved a lot from when I started with sport radar. Um, there wasn't necessarily a huge array of different competitors or other businesses tangentially involved in the space, not specifically, you know, in that form of supplier. And now it's, it's certainly thriving. And, and I see decks all the time of new data businesses, new pricing businesses coming up, trying to, to take a slice of, either the US market or, or just globally. So the the core business model is uh, selling data about 
the fixtures, who's playing, when, uh, what the score is, when the market's over. Is that correct? Yep. And then all through live, all the incident data for you know every every second, couple of seconds throughout a match, what's going on in the game. So, so how how has it changed? You, you know, uh, I think the whole licensing, the official data feeds that that's kind of been the last five years, especially in the United States. I think there's been a really big push to try to help the leagues monetize, uh, to get quote unquote unofficial feeds, and also to you know legitimize. Um, I don't know. Legitimize this industry by working closely with the with the sports themselves. Um, you know, from my perspective, I kind of view a lot of it, it it seems quite bizarre that sports betting companies have to pay the leagues for its data how do you kind of think about that you know if i'm a for example if i'm the washington post and i'm writing an article about the nationals i don't send the nationals a check to say to for the pleasure of writing about the nationals i have to give them a check but if i take a sports bet in washington dc uh they're going to want a cut of that sports bet so what is the sort of the business idea behind sports betting companies paying the leagues for that data? I think it really comes ultimately down to product and price. I think if you go back before the world of official league data, certainly back in Europe and some of the other markets I was working in prior where it just really didn't really exist, even back to 2015 where almost every supplier who was working with data was, was doing it themselves, all their own fingers and hands tapping keyboards and entering the data manually and trying to get information from all different sources to, to have a data product. And I think what the partnerships with the leagues ultimately allowed was a streamlining of some of that and working closely and directly with the actual stakeholders and helping them monetize the data themselves, for example. Um, but also I think the operators found a lot of value in that. And certainly throughout that, initial period when we were going through the the early evolution of official data it was certainly beneficial across the board um some might argue it's changed and i've been out of the data business for a while now so not you know finger on the pulse today but certainly in the beginning it was across the different stakeholders the way it was all structured and organized meant that there was value creation across the board instead of seven eight second delay on a manually collected data feed if you work closely with the sports league, um, there's certain integrity uh, areas that are far more beneficial. And then I think from a product perspective, getting that to the operators, they have confidence in it. They have confidence there, therefore in their, their pricing and therefore have confidence in what a live betting product would look like. So I think it it certainly helped a lot, of, a lot of all of the stakeholders at that time. And it's certainly been a different point of contention in the US. There's plenty of public discourse about official league data, but I think certainly the intent and the beginning of, of what we set out to create was was definitely value creation. So uh, you're currently at uh, points bet now, correct? Yeah. So, uh, but you cut your teeth a lot. You, you spent a lot of time at Sport Radar. What's what's your prediction for where the sports data industry is going to go? Do you see like the Bloomberg's, uh, you know, sort of the financial market? data type companies getting involved in this industry? Do you see sports leagues doing it themselves? Do you see sports radar continuing to dominate? I think any of those are possible. I think as we were sort of thinking through the evolution of the industry back when I was working at sport radar, it was really about how do we position ourselves three, five, seven years in advance of where it's going and, and be ready for that. And we may or may not have done a good job at the time, but certainly now it, it feels like, Anything is possible. Everything's up for grabs. You know, you hear rumors of Facebooks and Amazons and, and Googles or Disney's or all these types of companies might 
getting might be getting involved and if they were maybe they would start at the point of of data and technology and, and back end rather than b2c and front end um i don't have a great guess right now as to where it'll head i think it's possible that um any of those scenarios play out but i think what will happen is it'll it'll certainly continue to progress from a real-time perspective from a live perspective from a an in-play perspective and therefore the data component is going to be critical not just the core data feed with the the real-time incident data but real-time pricing and like i said not just the, the core markets but i think there is an appetite for far more product differentiation across the board in play which as anyone knows who's tried their hand at that space it's a really difficult area to get right to get right all the time you know some of these slas are 99.9 percent .9 and they're hard to to uphold and that 0.1% causes people to go mad. So it's it's a really tricky business, but I think it's certainly changed and, and iterated a lot in the last five years. And I think a fresh set of eyes from US entrepreneurs, from US um, product people, and, and certainly US gamblers, people who are gamblers working in the space, which I think makes it far better. And certainly we'll see that iteration and evolution continue. And it'll be really exciting because those on the sideline probably have a lot of interesting products to, to provide to the, the industry and those getting involved now or are involved are pretty serious players who can change the dynamics of what we grew up with in Australia or what was typical in Europe. There's just a different thought, approach, mentality uh, and attitude to what gambling could be in this country. Whether we like it or not, someone from afar coming in, uh, it just is what it is and there'll be plenty of changes to status quo whether they'll be enormous shifts i doubt it because the someone's told me the function of a bet hasn't changed for centuries and i don't think it will but certainly the components around it will be attacked by everyone at all times and it'll continue to make it better and um it's a it's a really interesting space to be in just for that you know perspective alone cool let's let's pivot to points bet so what's your role now at points bet so I've hung up the, the legal Actually, stuff. before we get to that, why don't you um, yeah. talk to the audience what PointsBet is and, and uh, what it's trying to do? Yeah, so B2C operator started out in Australia, now in, in North America as well. Um, typical sports book. We also have spread betting, which, which many will be aware of, certainly those who have been in the, the UK or, or other markets. Um, basically trying to be a challenger brand to the established brands here in the US, anyone who knows the US market, it's the big DFS companies, it's the big casino operators. Um, some of the horse racing businesses have been involved. Not many from outside of that group have have made a dent into the, the US market. It's been a really challenging one for, for various reasons. And I wanted to take on a new challenge uh, outside of legal and, and really try broaden my horizons. So that was the, the impetus for, for joining PointsBet. I think Johnny and the team um, have put together a pretty incredible product in a really difficult space which is the u.s market and i just wanted to to get involved in the strategy and operation side and, and do a little bit different day-to-day -day things that i was doing at sport radar and also just continue to grow and, and do something different that wasn't contracts and corporate legal and some of those things that was standard in my uh my previous life you don't miss uh you don't miss contract law and no licensing compliance <laughs> regulatory um there's plenty of areas that there's yeah. far smarter people than i who can handle so so jump in i mean as much as you can share obviously jump into your current role like what's your remit what where are you trying to take things what 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 what's on your mind right now yeah so 
a lot of different things. We're we're still in some respects uh, in startup mentality and mode, so we can have a chance as a challenger brand, um, but also just maturing as a business. And I think it's been a pretty wild eighteen months. I think for anyone and everyone in in uh, the gaming industry, certainly, but even more broadly, you know, growth and tech stocks have been hit pretty hard recently. Um, I think just the broader macro trends around what's going on in in certainly the US markets. Um, as my wife, who's an investment specialist would say, there's plenty of risk off going on and we're probably in the midst of a recession here in the US. So it's a different environment than it was even 12, 12 months ago where things were in a completely different direction. So it's been a it's been a fascinating journey just going through some of those cycles, which have been rapid. Um, I think from my perspective, it's it's really just helping the business position itself for success in the US. And that has been relatively consistent for PointsBet, but also just dealing with the, the outside influences and forces as well, um, to the extent possible, just to make sure that we are continuing to grow, grow sensibly and, and working within the, the parameters of what the market will allow. It's obviously a state-by-state -state framework here, which means there's a lot of individual analysis and there's a lot of detail to pass through, which obviously having a legal background will help. Um, it's really just making sure we, we treat every jurisdiction individually um, and put ourselves in the best position, which for anyone who's, who's worked in the business in the US, it's really about single approach by state and just making sure you get it right because they're all very, very different in many respects. So if I'm a better in New Jersey, why should I use PointsBet? For us, it's really about product uh, and technology. And there's been a strong focus before my time and, and up into today to just make sure we, we own that part of the business. It's a complicated platform, um, technology systems, working on the B2B side, seeing it. It's it's not easy to put all those pieces together. So being able to do that and, and owning that that part of the business means that we can hopefully move far quicker. Um, we can zig when people are zagging. We have the agility to do different things that allow us to hopefully position ourselves to be a challenger brand that becomes, you know, one of the incumbents over time. So I think that's the, the key component for us. And and it's it's certainly a, a challenging thing to be up in 10 states, for example, in the US plus Canada and obviously the Australian business and continuing to grow that. So just making sure we we're running on the right course and and making sure it's it's sustainable. So that's probably the, the core focus right now. Cool. So again, please only share what you're able to share. But uh, for for listeners at home, uh, you know, a lot of sports bets, a lot of sports books, excuse me, a lot of sports books outsource their technology. Does PointsBet outsource some of their technology? Or do they build all the sports book stuff their, themselves in in house? So almost all in house, all proprietary. Um, and I think that. You know, listening before I started a points bet, listening to some of the the four C or the earnings calls was around that topic. Um, you know, Sam and Johnny talked a lot about that, making sure that was a priority. Um, I, and I think it's hopefully a, a differentiator over time. Where we're still in the very early stages. Plenty of analysts will talk about a thirty or forty billion dollar industry that was created uh, in twenty eighteen, and we've got many years to get there. We're still waiting on Florida and Texas and California and other states to meaningfully open up if that's going to be the case. So it's it's really about the long view and making sure that everything we put in place today will help that. Um, and I think having the product and technology in-house allows that flexibility and agility and not needing to go to a, a B2B supplier and, and take a lot of those core components that allow the, the sports book to run. Got it. And from a pricing perspective, do you, do you guys outsource that or do you guys do the pricing yourselves as well? So we acquired a company called Bannock Technology um, that does all the pricing. So we're, 
trying to make sure we have all those components that are critical um, in-house. So I think that's been part of the plan. We obviously use third-party services uh, where necessary, but certainly the the pricing component is is critical. And and as things trend towards and, and drift towards live and in play, that pricing part is going to be really interesting into the future and and how that evolves. Which we've seen in other markets. You know, there's obviously the the bet fairs and the markets and the exchange side of things is obviously the the typical sports book pricing as well. So we're really early here in the US, and it's a matter of getting those core products, which really is the the core for US sports, obviously college is massive here uh, and making sure that the, the majority of volume um, is priced well and we can have that sort of long-term consistency as well, which at least in my view personally is is having as much of that in-house as possible. So there, uh, there's been endless hype of the American market, you know, like you, you threw out a number, 30, 40 billion dollars. Um, I think there's no question it's going to be close to that, you know, who knows how high it'll go and it's going to take a while for all the states to roll out. But do you think that things are kind of going, you know, you are probably one of the most experienced people in this market since you have a a background in in betting outside of America, you came to America right when the law changed or, or before rather, like, how do you think the rollout's going? Is it slower than you expected, faster? How do you feel about it? It's kind of both. I think it it was the momentum expected from earlier states, I think, was going to be that all the other states would follow and follow relatively quickly. I think to a large extent that's happened. It's just been so patchwork and plenty of smarter people than me who've been in politics or, you know, legislative side of things in the US would have said that, but just how different it is by state. And some people will from the outside say, well, there's a betting app. You can bet in play, you can bet pre-match. It's kind of the same thing. But if you're in the weeds on it all, it's it's truly very, very different in every state. And I live in New Jersey. I can go 15 minutes over the, the Hudson and be in Manhattan, and it's the New York market. And then there's you know Connecticut and Pennsylvania and all those different surrounding areas and states that it is very different. So it's it's really been a it's a challenging exercise to be um, compliant and on the regulatory side specifically, exactly where you need to be to launch and then obviously continue uh, with ongoing operations. So it's just been an almighty challenge. And I think that in and of itself has meant that the growth was always going to be there. But I think the the ability for many, many companies to be in many, many states is probably not as quickly as people would have, would have thought looking back. Um, if you look at some of the graphs, there's probably seven or eight different uh, brands, let's say, or businesses that are in many, many states. And then there's a sort of a long tail of others that are in two, three, four, five, six, and I think it'll be interesting to see in, in maybe four or five years from now when, in theory, the, the catch-up part is, is happening, whether or not we see 15, 20 brands in, in many, many states, or if we do see it, it fragmented in many ways like it is now. From my perspective, I think a lot of the uh, different states uh, made a, a lot of mistakes on how they did the legislation. For example, Connecticut has, a, I think, a duopoly or monopoly situation. Oregon has a monopoly. Um, I, I think there's no question that, uh, you know, monopolies are horrible for competition. Uh, you know, the Washington, D.C. is an example. Oregon is, is an example. So is Connecticut. Um, I've been incredibly frustrated that uh, a lot of the casino lobby seems to have a pretty powerful sway in, in state legislatures, uh, somewhat understandably, but nevertheless frustrating. Um, uh, and for, from my perspective, sports betting has nothing to do with casino. You know, like people kind of lump them together, um, at, you know, but I, I think sports betting goes with casino like 
fixing your car goes with uh, cutting the lawn. You know, like there are things that we can do, but uh, sports betting is a is a much different uh, much different system industry uh, than the casino industry. Um, do you share that frustration? I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a punter, you're passionate about this industry. Do you think that America, especially, I mean, vis-a-vis the states, has made a mistake that the way that the legislation has gone? It'd be awesome if it was one set of rules federally or one set of licensing or one set of standards, let's say, across core topics. You know, it'd be great if responsible gambling was properly handled entirely across the country in every state, not just states that have legal sports betting. Um, things like, you know, licensing, I mentioned, it's very hard to get individual license in every state. It's different. The forms are long and arduous for anyone who's been through that process. So I think plenty of those things, it would be great to see it centralized. And, and then I think you can have the local nuance and allow locally have states have some influence on what they want to see and why and how they want to go about it. So I would say a, a there's a mix probably would be optimal if I was architecting this to have plenty of things centralized and then allow the local innovation flexibility and, and have the uh, decentralized nature of each state working to an advantage for everyone so that we see situations where we wouldn't think of something within framework X pop up in framework Y and then in theory they could bleed off each other over time. Um, I think that would be cool to see, but I obviously know the system and the functionality of that system. It just doesn't allow for, every single time to see optimal setups being implemented for, for various reasons. And I've seen a lot of different reasons over the years. Yeah. It's, I mean, from my perspective, it's been incredibly frustrating and, you know, I run a small business, you know, I'm just one voice out of many voices. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's been a shame because I think the uh, British market as an example is a very high, you know, well-functioning market. Anybody can become a sports book um, in the UK if you pay the fees and go through the, the regulation. And the fees aren't crazy, you know. In some states, it's, you know, low seven figures just to, that that's table stakes. Before you even start, you got to pay low seven figures. So I've been really frustrated about that. And uh, I've heard, you know, I think kind of going to your point about there being a lack of heroes, you know, there just aren't that many voices of reason within sports betting, which is, I think, part of the reason I was so attracted to your podcast because there aren't that many people talking about the right way to set these things up. And, you know, Sheldon Adelson's of the world take up a, a huge percentage of the oxygen, um, the, the, God, what's the right word? The, the, the thinking in the yeah. industry, uh, you know, Sheldon Adelson for like 10 years was really driving the um, the thinking around sports betting, which is just completely backwards and old fashioned and uh, protectionist, really. Cool. So it, let's pivot back. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and it's really hard. It's not a simple thing to draft legislation or pass that legislation to the regulator and then have it implemented perfectly and see everyone happy. There's a lot of different stakeholders and there's a lot of different types of gamblers, types of operators, types of suppliers. So, but I do think there are some core elements that are non-negotiable, like responsible gambling and integrity items and things like that, that we could probably get right centrally. But maybe over time we'll see people and 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 things pop up that allow some of those best practices to be easily implemented, rather than always having a blank canvas. Like a clean slate is great in many instances, but on some things, it's not a bad idea to to reap the learnings of of decades of happenings in other jurisdictions as well well the theory of state uh state control is that the states compete against each other and you can iterate faster so fingers crossed that some of these states that rolled out monopolies and uh 
uh, and other inside baseball licenses that they they figure out ways to open it up. So let's pivot a little bit back to the the podcast. So you interviewed 170 guests. I mean, I would I would you know that's probably one of the you know you're probably one of the most prolific podcasters, generally speaking, um, but certainly within the sports betting space. How like which like I don't know. Talk a little bit about the guests you like. Like what what made a great podcast? What made a great guest? Um, from a host perspective, because everybody hears it from the listener perspective. How did you feel as as the host of 170 guests? So the the best ones from my perspective were probably where I had a natural or organic connection with the other person, and I didn't realize this at the time, but I was accidentally structuring in that way. Anyway, it was an area that I was interested in. It was me booking every guest. That's the right word. Um, it was a very niche area. So anyone that listened probably found it on purpose. They weren't just listening, you know, watching the nightly news on TV and seeing something. It was, they went out of their way to probably find it. And therefore the listenership and the guests pool was very small and therefore very targeted. And, people that I probably related to well. And it wasn't like I had a, a agency booking people and they would go online and find me guests who I'd never heard of. And it was people that I knew and or respected and or had heard about or had been introduced to that I went and did research on and sometimes way too much research and sometimes, you know, reading academic papers for hours that probably didn't add any value. But um, some of those things that allowed me to have a hopefully a decent conversation most of the time. and. I think also just sort of turning off the serious button for a little bit and just sort of having a chat as if you would, you know, at the pub or, or over a coffee or over dinner and just talking about things in a, in a generally relaxed way, um, I think helped. And I don't think that would have been the same had it been more formalized or booking guests or people I'd never heard of, or I was always excited to do it. It was an hour of my week that I was always interested in. Selfishly, it was the best networking tool that you could ever imagine. And it was the best, um, I guess, learning tool, if that's the right word, to hear from other people that are actually doing stuff and having them before, during, and after the podcast talk to me, little old me, about about some of this stuff, which never otherwise would happen. You can go do an executive business course. You can do an MBA. You can do a lot of other things. You can quit your job and, and bet, you know, in New Jersey full-time probably for for a um, decent amount of money. But being able to tap into a lot of the people that are on that list was yeah, pretty ridiculous looking back that I had the ability to to tap into an hour of their time. Are there areas that you wish you delve into that, that you would like to see this podcast go in that direction? Like, are there certain personalities that you think were underrepresented in, on the podcast? Yeah, and I tried to attack some of them. Um, tried to find as many women as possible, tried to find any niche topics and things like that. And I'd always get criticism for, well, no one cares about Bitcoin sports betting or no one cares about B2B suppliers. And no one cares. It was always, it was like, we just want the best gambler ever every week. Uh -huh. And if it was that easy, <laughs> I would have done it. It's certainly <laughs> not. But I think um, I always enjoyed, and I listened to other podcasts and enjoyed the, some of the nostalgic um, look back stuff. Not everyone likes that, but I like talking to people that have might, might have done it for 20 or 30 years and yeah. are happy to share a lot of things that they've picked up along the way or some of the stories as well as, you know, useful, actionable stuff. But I do, I do enjoy hearing about that. 
Um, and I also just like differing point of views. Like I, I think the standard status quo stuff is fine and a lot of times helpful, but I also think some of the, the non-status quo stuff is good to dive into and, and, and try and pick it apart a little bit in a, in a positive way, just to understand the dynamics at play and the components. And I think that's one of my general sort of thesis of the US market is the fresh set of eyes on some of these problems that we've all attacked over the last, you know, couple of decades that there's been sort of digital digital wagering um that's fun and interesting and you know there's been a, a lot of different things along the way that i didn't talk about that personally i look into that were probably interesting to talk about but just didn't have the right person or, or people to, to do it so i think just generally having the wide array of guests and topics and thoughts and not needing to solve everything for everyone was one of the things that i learned pretty quickly because that's <laughs> it's not a very feasible scenario over the years, I've met many very successful sports bettors, uh, and the the crazy thing about them is they never tell you how they make money. So, like, we can have them. On, I'm sure I'll, we'll have some on as guests, but uh, the real secret sauce they never reveal because that's how they, they make all their money. So, um, yeah, the, they they keep that's their cards the, close to the best. The trickiest part is what people can't say. You kind of know going in, or at yeah. least pretty quickly, and then trying to make sure you provide some useful value or or ask them questions that allow them to speak freely, but, but won't get into the, the secret sauce. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, I like to ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, that's a good question. I, I think probably a stay-at-home dad was high on the list for sure. Um, it's still high on the list, but obviously life sometimes intervenes. But I think it's a good question. Um, I think I'm just a simple very simple person you know some fresh air game of golf every now and then nice hot coffee and that'll probably do me i think if i had to be honest um the fanfare and extravagance and some of those things are nice every now and then but but really when it comes down to it just uh you know a nice hot coffee and some fresh air will, will probably do it sounds lovely well on behalf of all the listeners uh i want to thank you for all the work that you put into this um you know, I, I, it's such an amazing uh, group, body of work that you have and, and I'm very honored to carry this forward. And thanks for all the effort that you've put uh, getting getting business of betting online and, and out into the listeners. And thanks for being my first guest. You're welcome, Jason. Thank you.